You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 123 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode we are going to be visited by someone who has appeared before on the podcast. Roughly about a year ago, in episode 62, Matthew J. Palamari. And Matthew is a shamanic explorer, a teacher and an award-winning author. And he has recently published his latest book called Nothing. So thanks for being on the podcast again. I appreciate you having me. So what's happened since uh, last time you've been on? Uh, two, two things. And I think if I remember correctly, the day I did this was a year to the date that we, we last did one. Uh, by coincidence, but I, I just released a science fiction novel. It's titled Nothing, and it's a small n, and it's the numeral zero thing, and it's named after my nephew who goes by Nothing, and he's a uh, he's a video game rock star. He's an esports in a game called Counter Strike. So. This uh, this science fiction novel gets into uh, computer, well, ga- gaming, but a computer-generated dreaming, and um, altered states of consciousness, and uh, PTSD veterans, and lots of things like that. It's a sequel to another novel called Dreamland. There's a whole other story behind that about computer-generated dreaming. And uh, I, I also recently, we just published the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference scrapbook, uh, which is about the history of the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference, 30 years of history, and I've been teaching there for 25, and it's got tons of famous writers in it, and interviews, and pictures, and stuff like that. So I've been a really busy boy, got uh, two book releases right in a row, and this, this one uh, literally just came out, the science fiction one, titled Nothing. Do you have to read the first one, the Dreamland, before you read this one? You don't. I wrote it so that it stands on its own uh, as a story. But if you happen to read Dreamland, there's a lot of little inside things you'll catch that other people may not catch. But uh, even the people who don't catch it, who are reading nothing you know, for the first time, uh, the story is complete in and of itself. And there's enough that doesn't interrupt them. Have you had any uh, experience uh, with uh, the current virtual reality that's coming out? I've um, looked at it and poked around with it. Um, I'm not big. uh, I'm into it as a novelty. You know, I'm not a freak freak about it like that. But uh, one of the things that happens in Dreamland and in this book is that the boundaries between dreaming and reality blur. And um, I've done a lot of work with ayahuasca in the jungle, and I, I know all about dreaming and how reality blurs. So actually, toward, this story gets into the technology and all that, and then um, ayahuasca gets brought into the picture. I was at a seminar recently, and I got a chance to try uh, virtual reality. And uh, I must say that uh, it uh, it's not there yet, but, you know, give it another 10 years, and it it's probably indistinguishable from from this reality. The only thing they have to figure out is, you know, the sense of smell and touch and those kind of nuances that you forget about. It's not only what you see. How, do you do you deal with uh, these other nuances in the virtual reality you're writing about? How, how does it technically work? <laughs> well, yeah. So um, that's a really great question, Alex. Thank you. Um, it actually takes it one step further. And and what I mean by that is um, they have this they have okay so they have a way that they have created computer generated dreaming so they put these like hoods on and um, they go into a programmed dream and they initially program the dreams after video games the, these guys are video game top of the video game uh, comp- competitors. 
and they model the dreams after the video games. And so instead of being in the video games, they send them into a, a group dream where they have their whole battle scenario. And then they start working with uh, PTSD veterans and they're training these guys to go into the dreams of PTSD veterans to cure their trauma. So what happens is when they go into the situations, into the veterans' dreams, and they go into the battle things, sometimes they forget they're in a dream, and, and, and when they get hit or something happens in the dream, it really hurts. So they have, they can, you know, like as opposed to a, a computer game, when they're in this dreaming game scenario, they can smell gunpowder. Uh, if something explodes near them in, in one situation, they, they get knocked out and they wake up and totally forget they're in dreaming and they think it's all real. Um, so all of the sensory things that that you don't get uh, from computers and or slash electronics in that way, you get in this dreaming state. But the dreaming state is all... Um, enhanced by technology it's all radio waves and frequencies and and i did a lot of research on brain uh, and neurochemistry and the latest in you know uh, electronic neural stimulation and stuff like that so there's a lot of that so my point is that this experience is totally when you're in it just like you can you can be in a regular dream and when you're in the middle of that dream it's real to you you don't in that moment for you from your point of perception it's real to you so that's what happens in these dreams, and then it goes on even more from there. But so to me, it's like it's like uh, virtual reality on steroids. That's a good way to put it. The few times I've had extremely realistic dreams, there was no question when I was having the dream, and I of course didn't realize I was dreaming that it was reality because you can have, you know, when you have normal dreams where you're dreaming about, you know, going to work, normal things, nothing weird is happening, and everything is extremely normal. Uh, so when you wake up, you go, oh, I didn't realize I was dreaming. That was so real. But as soon as you wake up, you realize. In fact, it was a dream because there were some things that were off and you realize, ah, it wasn't that realistic now when I think about it. And the same thing with uh, ayahuasca ceremonies sometimes where it's so real, uh, it's not even any point to question it. But the day after you think back, so it's only in the in the aftermath when you think about it that the reality, the realness of the reality you experienced weakens and uh, the well, it could the problem that it could be a problem. The problem with this is then, well, so what about now? Uh, but maybe when when we when we die, you know, we go, oh, <laughs> that was just whatever it was, you know. Yeah, right. What a ride that was, right? That was fun. Let's do that again. <laughs> and that's really, you know, I've t I've some people I've talked told this concept too they go yeah that's amazing or wow and that and some people get really freaked out and w one girl one time told me that oh i don't want to talk about that <laughs> oh yeah yeah well you know in indigenous cultures particularly uh, like south american tribal cultures uh dreaming and um waking and visions they all get treated equally it's all like the same continuum just different states of consciousness. So for them, the real, quote-unquote, real-world consensual reality that you and I are in right now, uh, for them, is just as much dreamlike in a lot of ways. They, they give it the same weight. So there's a there's a certain sort of, for lack of better words, kind of a flexibility of perception that goes with that. I've had this new idea I've been trying out where, you know, when you go to sleep, you can practice to have a lucid dream. And But I, I've tried, and I guess, I mean, the Buddhists call it awareness and things like that, but I've tried to live my, I've tried to force, when I wake up in the morning, I try to make my waking up become, so this reality also becomes a lucid dream. It's like a, a an out, just an outlook, you know, I, you know, the Buddhists call it awareness, but it's, you know, I was trying to find a way to look at it that makes more sense to me. So I thought... You know, live life as a lucid dream. You know. Yeah, I love that. That's there. There are some um, perceptual exercises I learned when I was doing some studies of shamanism. I'll just give you one for an example about playing with your awareness. 
And uh, one of them that's a lot of fun that I still do sometimes is when you look at a like a tree and you see the tree in the foreground and you can see the, the blue sky in the background and everything behind it, you can see a lot through the tree, but you see the tree in the foreground. Then you play with your perception and instead of focusing on the tree in the foreground, you focus on make the blue in the background stand out and and kind of switch things around on yourself. And there are a number of other little exercises you can do to play with and exercise your perception in different ways so you can see things a little differently sometimes, if that makes any sense. Yeah, now I've also been a bit confused about con- constantly staying in awareness because a few weeks ago I was driving and I was listening to music and I was thinking, okay, should I be aware that I'm driving or should I just be aware in the music? But then, you know, I might be not be driving so safely. So, or is it being aware, just being aware of everything at the same time, but that can be chaotic in society. So it's hard to f- figure out wh- what they really mean when, when they, the Buddhists say awareness, you know. Yeah, I, I I think it's mostly about paying attention. I mean, even you just said, even even having the, th- to me, even for you to have the thought of, wow, uh, should I be, you know, listening to the music like this and should I be driving? That, to me, is a moment of awareness. You know, what you did with it afterwards, and, and you may have even only, you may have thought that for three seconds and that said, forget about it. But in that moment, that is awareness. So it's paying attention and realizing that you have, Lots of different impulses and urges inside of you that come out at different times. And sometimes you got to kind of run with it, especially like like you had me thinking about being in a creative mode. Like when I wrote this book, when I write books and I really realized that writing this book, when I'm writing like that, I am in an altered state. I'm not fully here. I'm, I'm really stretching things and, and, and you know, creating something. Um, so it's, it's, you know, a different level uh, of awareness as opposed to like, for argument's sake, you know, being a junkie and you're stoned out of your gourd. Well, then you probably don't have any awareness of anything. That's the whole point of being a junkie, right? Blot it all out. But uh, it, it's, it's all about paying attention. The composer Philip Glass, I saw a documentary about him once and he said that he's not composing music, he's listening. So then I'm thinking like, is that maybe how when you write, you're not writing, you're reading. That's the best way to write? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And without sounding too woo-woo and new age and all that, it, it is really to a large degree channeling. Um, you're, you know, it comes through you and the stuff that comes through and the stuff that comes out of you is, is like, whoa, oh, geez, I said that? Wow, where'd that come from, you know? Um, some really cool stuff, but... It's also, you know, the whole process is about working with your subconscious. So when you learn how to work with it and then you understand more how it works, you kind of get out of its way and let it do its thing, if that makes any sense. I always like this story about about how Alexander Dumas, who wrote The Three Musketeers, and it's like several books about the musketeers, and then... He was finishing his last book and suddenly he came running into another room and just threw himself on the couch crying and his wife or his friend or somebody asked him what, what was wrong and he just said, oh, D'Artagnan has died. You know, <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't prepared that he would die even though he was the writer, you know. Yeah, exactly. I've, I've gone through that. Um, I have a historical novel called Land Without Evil and... Um, it's about first contact between the Jesuits and the Indians in South America, but it's told from the Indians' point of view. And um, it's historical, and a lot of people died in that, and there were characters I was killing off, and that was not fun. But it, it needed to happen for the sake of the story, which is, you know, Sam, what you're telling me here about Dumas. So they're your family, and sometimes you got to kill them, you know? Did you ask your, was it your nephew, about the, the gaming world? Yeah, I did. As a matter of fact, he, so he's, um, he's the youngest of three brothers. And he read the first parts of the book and gave me some really great input uh, to get some of the vernacular right. Like I was calling it e-gaming and he said, no, it's esports now. And uh, 
I wanted to get the weaponry and all the stuff that they use and how they use it. I wanted to get all that right. So he gave me some really awesome tips about that. And then his older brother uh, helped me. I watched some of the matches and he told me what they were doing and he, he gave me the overview of it all. So um, it was great input on both their parts. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, we it's impossible to know, but when... Uh your generation or so older than me and but i'm still older than the generations under me but so when we're when we're gone and and those generations are our ages uh, you know it would be interesting to know how they would even perceive existence when it's so much in the digital world yeah you're absolutely correct that's one of the sort of underlying sub themes of the book Um, but you know, touching back on my historical novel, Land Without Evil, and one of the main reasons I wrote that is because a lot of the stuff in there was maintained through oral tradition, which is disappearing. You know, these thousands and thousands of year old myths and stories and, and even wisdom uh, has been maintained orally and it, it's getting lost in the digital age. So in this current book now, uh, nothing. I take it from the digital And then I take it back to the organic, so to speak. It, it, it ends up with ayahuasca for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, they, I, I might as well finish this last part. They go into the dreams of the PTSD veterans and go through the traumas with them. And when they do that, they cure the veterans of their traumas. But what happens is they take them on themselves and they all start having the nightmares. So the creators invent another dream that they, they joke about and they call the crack dream. And they send them into this crack dream and it and it gets rid of all the negativity from the trauma. It, get, it erases the trauma. But they get addicted to the crack dream. So then they caught, get caught in an addiction cycle between the battle dreams and the crack dream. They get caught in that cycle, spinning back and forth between the two. And um, without getting too much into the whole story, that's when ayahuasca comes in and changes everything. Are you planning to do like a trilogy since you've done two? It's always nice to have three. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I am. This evolved in an interesting way because um, years ago I wrote the, 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 the prequel, Dreamland. And I wrote, you're talking about generations and stuff like that. So I wrote Dreamland with... Uh, a really good friend. He's been dead now for about 10 years, but he was a famous DJ back in the early 70s and, and late 60s. He was one of the first FM radio DJs to break acts like Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix. Nobody else was playing them. So he was famous back then for that, you know, in the world of radio. And we wrote this Dreamland together. Then um, Some years back, 10, 12 years ago, I got asked to write a screenplay. There was a movie in 1969 called Colossus, The Forbin Project. And it was about a computer that takes over the world. And I got asked to write a sequel to it by these guys. And, you know, I got in, involved and got some money. But it turns out they really didn't know what they were doing. And they didn't have the rights to do it. And um, a week after I registered the script with the Screenwriters Guild, or the Writers Guild, um, DreamWorks announced that they were going to be making the sequel to this movie, Colossus. Anyway, I had this whole script about this computer that takes over the world, the story, and I had Dreamland, and I thought for years and years and years about how could I connect the two. But what happens in Dreamland is the dreaming computer gets out of control. And I was also thinking about my nephew, uh, the main character, And um, he's, um, we're really close. And I thought, here he is in the video game world and the computers and the technology. And here's a computer from Dreamland that's out of control. And here's this one that takes over the world up the road. There's a big story arc right there. That can be the whole trilogy story arc. And I could even go on and on and on. Um, it could be, uh, one of the things I've been getting into lately, past couple of years, is series Like on Netflix, where you can watch all of the Battlestar Galactica, the, the newer one, 72 episodes. So I could see this going on as a series like that, too. It has lots of levels and lots of depths and lots of lots of areas to explore. There are other parts of it I'm not telling you. I'm trying to keep it succinct, but also uh, 
enough to interest listeners and, you know, people who are thinkers such as yourself. If you really want to imitate Netflix, you you have to write 10 books and release them all at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding, huh? That's the truth. No, it's funny with Netflix. If you're watching a good series, you're waiting a year and then you watch it all in two days. (laughs) Yeah, but for me, being a writer, I love to do that because I can analyze the stories and the segments and the bigger character arcs and the bigger plot arcs and all the things that you you couldn't do before with you know regular television series and um, even film to some degree. Film is two hours, that's it, you know? So the longer format's been interesting, for sure. I could see it doing that. Look at, look at Game of Thrones. God, how many episodes? How many, what now? Ten seasons? I don't even know what it is. People go nuts over it. So I could see something like that. I haven't read uh, these uh, two two parts of the trilogy or, or however many you have in the pipeline, but from the little I know of the plot and that, it sounds like it could work uh, very well in, in a film. I, I think so. I've, um, I have a lot of friends and colleagues who are screenwriters, and I've studied it quite a bit. Uh, I've gone to classes and seminars and blah blah blah, and I've been writing. I've been writing for close to thirty years, so it's dramatic structure, just like a novel. It's just different tools and different conventions. And sometimes you can use one. You can use screenwriting conventions and novels, and you can use novel writing conventions and screenwriting. But they're, they're still unique. But you're getting the same job done with different sets of tools. So I do try to write, and I'm told by many, many people I write visually, and um, so um, I have the, you know, the novel published and all that, and then if a script comes out of it, I, I do have a script written for Dreamland, long form. So um, it's just a matter of doing the work to make it happen for me. You know, I've got that much experience with it now. Would would you be bothered a lot if they, you know, make a film of your book and they just, you know, chop it up into pieces and do something, you know, as happens sometimes? It does. Um, you do what you can to keep as much creative control as possible, and then you're all you go with it the best. And I have a good friend, uh, Jerry DePago. He's a big time screenwriter, and um, he talks about that a lot. And there was that one of my favorite movies. I just rewatched it again, actually, because of him. There's a, there's a movie out, if you ever saw it, called Phenomenon with John Travolta. My friend Jerry wrote that. And they wanted to change the ending on it. And he was battling with them over the ending. They wanted to change it. And finally, John Travolta popped in and said, leave the ending the way it is. And if you change it, I quit. And they kept it the way it was. So that's one of the things that can happen, but it depends on how much control and who you're working with in the project, you know. I uh, I actually just, I, I'd mentioned that Santa Barbara Writers Conference scrapbook. Um, we also did a documentary film that I produced and directed. So I had a ton of say in that. So, you know, it all depends on who you're working with, how big it is, how much money there is, a lot of factors like that. But um, if, if they get the idea of it, I'm okay with it. Uh, in fact, now that I'm on this roll, I'll just finish this thought. This novel, Land Without Evil, that I was mentioning earlier, got turned into a big stage show in Austin, Texas, back in 2012. And um, it was um, 50 people. There were 30 people in the cast, 20 people in the crew, and it was aerialists and video projection and costumes and music and feathers. And, and we collaborated on the on the play and wrote it together. And there were some changes that at first I didn't like. But then I realized that my co-writer was playing to the strengths and talents of the uh, performers that she had. And it didn't change the overall story, the whole essence, the idea, the thought of it. So it was all good. So when you collaborate like that, and, and movie making is a collaborative effort, you have to be prepared to be flexible whenever you can. Sometimes I think, especially Hollywood, not so much independent films, but Hollywood sometimes forget that the the story that's been the found is the foundation of the film. Because many of my favorite films are actually really bad films, 
att det, det, det plot och det, det, det core story of the film is so interesting and good that I kind of forgive that it's a B-movie. So the, the story for me has always been more important than if, you know, the acting isn't perfect or something like that. But if you have perfect acting and perfect visuals, but there's a weak story, you know, I fall asleep. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely correct. I preach that all the time. Um, every story really follows, have you ever heard of the hero's journey in Joseph's Campbell, but there are elements, there are mythological and archetypal elements that are necessary for a story to happen. And we recognize them on really deep, deep levels of our psyche. And just like you said, if they're not there, then it's like all flash. It's all sizzle and no steak. It's, it's really all about story. You know, that it's, it's really story rules out over everything else in my humble opinion <laughs> isn't there some some like number they say there is only like x amount of stories and then there's millions of versions of telling those 10 stories something like that i don't know that you can really say there's x amount because there are new elements coming in but if, if you break it down to the bare bones basics a story is conflict if you don't have conflict you don't have a story So the very basis of a story is that conflict of two diametrically opposed energies or values. And that, if you want to say it, it all comes down to that. But the variations and the way and the themes and the and like like here here now I have this novel and it's computer generated dreaming with, with you know visionary plants and I mean who would have thought that of me, right? I mean I'm sure somebody would have, but It's catching what's going on now, sort of, in this day and age. I, I like to think that writing is a, re a reflection of culture. If you read a World War II novel, you get a sense of what it was like in World War II. And if you get stuff like was written then by like Hemingway, you get a real sense of it. And so as a writer, we capture the era. And even in, in this case, this is a science fiction speculative novel, I'm still talking about contemporary issues like PTSD veterans and, and the amount of time people spend with video games and how much the internet and technology is a part of our culture now. All those things, even though it's speculative, they're all uh, concerns of what life is right now in the 21st century. We as people, we, you know, we enjoy films and theater and books because, as you say, there has to be a conflict that makes it interesting. But if you, you know, if you die and go to some sort of heaven and it's all bliss and, you know, there's no conflict. So, you know, how do you solve this issue? Well, wouldn't, would it be boring then? Yeah, it would. That's another one of my favorite little subjects. And that is that I've met people on the path and some of them will go, well, I just want the light and I want to embrace the light and I just want to feel good and blah, 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 blah. And, and I tell them. When you drink ayahuasca, you embrace the darkness and the light. And how can you how can you learn everything if you don't learn the dark too? So, uh, for me, it's been necessary to embrace the darkness and the light in order to understand the whole. And you can't have the light without the dark. The um, the darker it is, the more in contrast to the light it is, and the brighter it is, the more in contrast to the dark. So the more they they take those places, they 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 um, they empower each other, you know, just like yin yang and male female and all those things. They, you can't have one without the other. It is boring. There's nothing there. So you do have to have that contrast. Is my point. But could it be that it's not boring when you know? Because when you reach those levels, maybe you you know you don't have your ego or the you know, the construct that we are in now. So maybe in that state, we perceive it in a different way. Yeah, I, I agree. That to me, that is my definition. It's what I call transcendence. Because if you get caught up in the polarities, then you're just as much stuck in one and the other. But if you learn how to, for lack of better words, kind of combine those polarities come to a new place of the energy in between them and realize that the power is not in the polarities, but actually in between them in the center. If you do that, then you transcend the polarities and you rise above them 
which is the definition of transcendence. And then you get to see the bigger picture because you see both sides of it. In terms of strict energetics and, and power, um, if you think of it as a pendulum, and the pendulum swings all the way up to one end, when it reaches the peak, it actually gets momentarily weightless. There's like no energy to it before it starts to swing back down. And when it reaches the very middle of the swing is where it has its absolute maximum power. Because once it starts to go up the other side again, it's already losing energy, you know, from the, from the momentum and resistance. So it, 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 it's kind of what I call a cosmic principle in that you have to really learn to transcend the energies and be in the middle of it. And that's where power lies. That's what's in the eye of a storm. In the middle of a hurricane, it's calm. Because that's the position of power. And any other place, you find that spot. Even, even, even if you want to get buddhist for a moment and talk about being you know uh having inner peace amidst uh, external chaos the same thing um it's that that being centered that's the place that's where it's at so well, one of the definitions of a story in terms of the hero's journey is that the, the hero starts out in their everyday life and everything is normal and then something upsets the balance of their life which sets them on the quest, and the quest is to regain the balance. And when they do it in that journey, they go to regain the balance. But in doing so, they get transformed by facing the darkness, and they become they get something out of it, the Holy Grail, personal power, whatever you want to call it, and they bring that back, and that is what resets the balance. But it's all about finding the balance. That's where it's at. So you have the conflict, which is a story, and resolving it. That's the journey of the story. I recently heard uh, this uh, talk by Terence McKenna where he said that something that human beings often have a problem with is that in at least in our life, you know, there's really no resolve. There's never any like now it's the hap now the happy ending has happened and now it's now it's end, you know, it's it's never it's ongoing. So it, that can be quite uh, stressful <laughs> well yeah it, it's perspective you never you never arrive it's really the journey because as you move through and then you get back to being aware and in the moment that's all that really matters what did i did yesterday has no relevance right now i don't know what's going to happen tomorrow but right now is what's the only thing that's truly sort of real is right now um terrence yeah terrence this novel, Land Without Evil, I'm telling you about, I've been talking about, Terrence got the absolute very first copy of it. And it's one of the last books, if not the last book he ever read before he passed away. Yeah, he, he was really interested also in the virtual reality because he was just kicking off a bit towards the end of his life, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And he did a lot with uh, uh, Bruce Damer, who's a buddy of mine. I don't know if you're familiar with Bruce Damer or not. He's going by Dr. Bruce these days. Yeah, I wrote him the other day, actually, to get him on the podcast, but he hasn't replied yet, so you can uh, poke him if you want. <laughs> yeah, I tell him, Mateo said, get off your butt and get on the podcast. Um, he's been down in the jungle with me a few times. Anyway, yeah, uh, Terrence was a big uh, inspiration, and um, they said he was he, the very first novel, the very first book from that printing, when that novel came out, he got it. So, I love the guy. He was great. We miss him. And the great thing with Terence is he doesn't really, f I mean, unless you knew him personally, but for us that didn't, you know, it doesn't feel like he's gone because he's so his presence is so big all over the internet, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, the impression that we make on others and what we do and little things that we all take on it's all like parts of them and we're 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 really carrying on really carrying on their spirit you know uh, i met a lot of people because of terrence and i did get lucky enough to spend uh, some really quality time hanging out with him and he liked my writing um he was always supportive of it and um as i said he uh he got that very first copy of, of land without evil when i because we knew he was going to die then so, um, 
he's everywhere and I feel really lucky to have got to know him and spend time with him uh, to get back to what we talked about uh, just before uh, Terence uh, you know um you know 10 years ago I, I i was more stressful and worried and you know all this kind of energy is not good for you so when i started working with ayahuasca i became conscious of, of this and you know you know consciously you know stopped worrying about problems that have not even happened yet and or stressing about what i did two years ago that you cannot change anyway. So I've been really trying to, for the last few years, you know, to just live today. You know, of course, you know, if if, if I know I have to do something tomorrow, you know, some some things you have to, but not, not, you know, such a big focus on it. And I noticed that there is some problems with this because sometimes when people ask me, oh, what did you do yesterday? And I just, I just, I'm sorry, I just can't remember, <laughs> you know. So people think I'm getting amnesia, you know, and they ask me, "What are you doing next week?" I, I actually, I don't have no idea, you know, <laughs> except if I book like a podcast or something like that. But you know, you know, everyday things. I just, uh, I, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like because I am becoming older every day, so I'm thinking, is this uh, an effect of my practice or is it uh, some sort of amnesia creeping up you know i think it's an indicator of being aware because you know there's that old saying where your attention goes there your energy goes and if you're sitting there tripping out about what's going to happen tomorrow or what you did two years ago and then your your part of you your energy is not in the present moment it's someplace else so you're not going to have as much those are what my old shamanic teacher would call energy leaks And so they're going to take away from your awareness of being in the present moment. So I would say that those kind of, you know, you call them lapses or whatever, they're lapses and everything because they're not important. They're not really relevant. In your normal day-to-day goings-on, it's not relevant and important. Right now, it's relevant and important for you and I at this moment as we're having this discussion. If I was all tripping out or distracted or doing something else or whatever, it wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't get good answers. We wouldn't be paying attention to each other. You'd be someplace else. So being here and now, you let the stuff that's just doesn't have as much relevance. You just let it go and don't give it the energy and attention because it's really undeserving of it. Best way I can describe it, if I compare myself 10 years ago, I do feel lighter in, in physically, you know, now. I, you know, I, my body felt heavier before somehow. It's hard to explain. <laughs> no, no, it totally makes sense. You, you, you're not carrying that baggage. You know, why carry it around? So, some, some years ago, I was, I, I had a tendency to be a hoarder, and some years ago, I was going through my garage, and I grew this pile of crap, and I'm like, Jesus, I've been dragging this shit around for 30 years. I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to do anything with it. Why am I hanging on to it? And there was a little bit of an emotional attachment. And I said, okay, that's that. And I threw it out or donated it, you know? So I'm sure you're lighter. Absolutely. You probably got a spring in your step now. That's funny that you say that because uh, I lugged around. I had 10, 10 boxes of old memorabilia of various sorts. And now I'm down to five. And I'm planning this summer to make it go down to one. <laughs> you're ahead of me, brother. There's... um. There's a saying I heard that says, um, and this is not original. So, um, the past is history. The future is a mystery. And right now is a gift. That's why they call it the present. Yeah, I was a football coach. Uh, was I was in like, I heard on. I saw it on TV. I was walking by like a locker room and I was like, wow, he really said that? <laughs> I don't think it was original. John Madden, that's who it was. There's a, there's a similar quote to what we're talking about. I don't know who said it either, but it's, uh, you know, what you own owns you. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing the, th- the only thing I hoard that I don't consider having the hoarding energy is uh, books. Uh, you're, you're, you're talking to the worst offender of that. I've got tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of them, and I feel the same way as you. It's on my library, you know. Because you know, if I die, you know, I, I you know, you give, you let it go on to somebody else to enjoy. You know, it, it, it has more, it has some sort of knowledge value, of course. Yeah, that, that's for me. I got 
I got shelves and shelves of books just on writing and shelves and shelves of books on psychology and shelves of books on, you know, psychedelic plants and stuff like that. I mean, I got this whole thing and I'm, I, it's like part of me. So that's, I'm with you on that. That's like my one thing. I'm going to keep that shit for, it's going to outlast me. <laughs> that's one of the things I think is the most horrible regarding Terrence is that his library burned down not once, but twice. Oh, because he had a big collection, apparently. I, I, what I've read, anyway. Yeah, and um, Bruce Damer has a large part, if not all, of uh, Timothy Leary's library. Oh, I didn't know he he uh, had one. Yeah, well, he's got he's got his own little thing. Like he's got the computer digi barn up there, and he's got all his old computers up there. I've never I have a standing invite to go up there. I haven't been there, but just what he's told me and friends have told me. Um. So you may even have part of Terence's too. So uh, how long have you been working with uh, ayahuasca now? Um, about 17 years. I researched it a good 10 years before that. Did a lot of research on it before I actually found it. And um, now I don't do it as frequently as I used to. I do it more now to facilitate other people, but... You know, I've 17 years and I've got a dozen long, lengthy, uh, you know, jungle dietas. We're doing a whole bunch of sessions together with all kinds of different plants, um, you know, different things like that. And at the peak of it, somewhere in the middle of it, I remember figuring it out. There were about two years in a row there where I was doing it like 30 times a year. And I was working in like three different traditions and. You know, I really have gained a lot from it. Now, if I, I always benefit from it, but if I never did it again, I'd be okay. But I do it now because I'm facilitating other people and, you know, passing on what's been given to me. I feel there's a there's a duty to that. The times in between for me are getting longer and longer because I feel like the after the first time, the afterglow or whatever you call it, the the effect is still lingering with you when you come back home. But it that effect lasts longer uh, now than it did in the beginning for you know for me. Yeah, I always you know I I, I liken that to to uh, integration. And now I've done so much for so long in so many different ways that I just just tell people that I'm constantly in the state of integration, twenty four seven. Now, you know. So. Uh, and, you know, and some people don't need as much. I know some people just did it once. That was all they needed. Everything was great. Some people more, you know, I really wanted to explore it, which I did. So everybody has their own relationship with it, you know. It's medicine. It's there. You know, so I imagine you've done it a lot of times. Do you still, like, if you would do it next month, would you still be, are you completely calm about it? Or are you still nervous? Not nervous, but uh, some degree of dread. Because first hour or two are always really uncomfortable for me. Once I once it's fully in me and I've had a good purge, then I'm rocking and rolling. I'm having a time of my life. But you know, there were, like the last time I was in the jungle, I did it. I did five group sessions and then two sessions by myself and. You just get so sick of drinking it after a while that your stomach, you know, you get you get sick of being sick if that makes any sense. So I have that dread for that part of it, but um, I wouldn't characterize it as fear. It's just, ah, you know, okay, let's get past this feeling like crap shit. Let's move on to the fun stuff. So and once you get over that bump, then everything's great. I have this thing that you know it's not it's never a good idea to force somebody to do it you know they have to find it themselves because I don't think that would be a good thing to do but then there are also people in your life that you think like oh they could really benefit so how could you like make them f- I mean I'm sure it's not my responsibility but you know you wish they would find it somehow but I don't know you know you want to like and when you mention it to them they don't want to and you're like oh you know you can't you can't you know you can't talk them into it but even though you you know i want to in my case yeah no the thing is and it's true of life 
and and spiritual paths in particular is that you you can't none of us can make anybody do anything even though we know it would be perfect for them if we can possibly convince them but in the end they have to help themselves they got to take the steps you know if somebody's addicted to something they have to make the step to you know go into treatment if they need be or whatever but nobody nobody can do anything for anybody else we all have to make those on choices ourselves and then if that person makes the choice then you can certainly help and facilitate but you know, I get asked a lot, and then I, people tell me, oh, I want to do this. Oh, hey, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I start telling them the details, and then I never hear back from them again. You know? They don't want to, the idea that they might puke or shit themselves or both. Right? And that's part of the, the price to pay. So, you know, they think, oh, I want to go in the middle of the jungle and be with all the animals. You know, they don't have any clue what it's all about. So, and you know, it's not for everybody. And I mainly had these thoughts about my mother, which is very close to me. I'm just like, oh, how how can I mean? I know she would benefit, but you know, she she's uh, she's one of those people who are uh, 100% uh, uh, a follower of the material, realistic, physical existence. <laughs> yeah, I know it's old school. My my mom, she's been dead about. A dozen years now we were very close and um she knew what i was doing and i almost i had it it just didn't work out but we almost uh, uh she was almost going to do some mushrooms with me before she died um which would have been a good thing it just didn't work out uh you know timing and all the other things in life to get in the way Recently, I've been thinking about DMT because I, then I could say, look, it's only five minutes. Oh, I don't know. If somebody <laughs> has any reservations, that's like five minutes, like, you know, in another galaxy. I mean, <laughs> you come back from that and you're like, huh? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not going to do it, but <laughs> just fantasizing, you know. So you said your book, was it, it came out just now. Uh, so but where can people find it if they want to read it and also the, the, the prequel? Yeah, they can find it on Amazon. Um, and, um, so the book is, it's a small N and then the numeral zero and then T H I N G. And, um, also my website is, uh, www dot, and then it's, it's mystic ink publishing, all one word, M Y S T I C I N K P U B L I S H I N G.com. There's a bunch of books there. I have, I have a dozen books in print. Um, some of them are more esoteric. I have a couple of nonfiction books, the historical. I got a, a couple of dark ones. Um, they're all there. And I also have a website, uh, www.mattpalamary.com. Uh, M, M as in Matt, A-T-T, P as in Paul, A-L-L-A-M-A-R-Y. And I got a lot of shamanism stuff there. I've got podcasts and lectures and radio shows uh, i'm on facebook too uh but yeah the book's on um amazon it's uh, available as an ebook you can also find it on apple ibooks itunes uh a whole bunch of other ebook distributors you know like uh, kobo and barnes and noble and the, the ebooks all over the place but the primary print book is uh on amazon Cool. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast again. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That was a great uh, discussion. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I hope the uh, listeners out there enjoy it like we did. And um, if I talk to Mr. Damer there, I'll get on his case. But you can rattle him in my name and say, you know, Mateo said, get off your butt and do something. Go to mattpalamari.com or mysticinkpublishing.com to find out more. And now let's wrap this baby up with a track called Remembering by John Gonzalez from the album Water and Whiskey. If you like this music, go to johngonzalez.com. That's J-O-N-G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-S.com. All the links will be posted in the program notes as usual. And if you want to support this podcast without having to spend any money, go to iTunes and give it a good rating. The topic next week is the magic cactus. 
Freedom is in the mind. I believe in nothing. Everything is sacred. The river of life has no beginning. Don't take your desires too seriously. I gave up yoga because it wasn't helping anyone but me. Have you experienced the pain of too much tenderness? Everything in this lifetime is on loan. The more advertising I see, the less I want to buy. Our women are beautiful. No, my, 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 my. Without a country, 'cause I'm me. Don't mean that I belong to this society. And no, oh, my mind could be a mess, misunderstanding. And no, oh, my mind could be I'm just, I'm just remembering. Never thought that anyone could be illegal. And freedom is more important than happiness. The river of life has no ending. I believe in everything, nothing sacred. And oh my my, I see a lot of doing and less of being. Religion is the only thing that got between God and me. Oh my my, must be a mis misunderstanding. Oh my my, must be I'm just I'm just remembering.